Hi everyone, welcome to the China and the Caribbean podcast, a podcast about the growing economic, social, and political relations between China and the Caribbean. Today we're talking with Jordan Schneider, the host of China Talk podcast, who actually is the primary motivation for this entire podcast. <laughs> This is、uh, you're my you're my most prized offspring. <laughs> So one of the things that you talk a lot about is China-U.S. tech, and in the Caribbean, that actually is a big deal because obviously a lot of tech that we use in Caribbean is obviously from the U.S. But a lot of our basic infrastructure now that she Huawei built, and I believe on a farmer episode of yours, you had Emily to talk about five G and Huawei and tech. And she actually was invited by the U.S. Embassy of the Eastern Caribbean a few weeks ago to have a similar conversation as well. Oh, very cool! From your perspective, how do you see the current troubles between the U.S. and China as it pertains to tech? How do you see that playing out over the next few years? Sure. Thanks for the question, Rashid. And hats off to your incredible intro music. So, what you've seen over the past. Starting at the end of the Obama administration, but going、uh, through the Trump administration, has been a growing sort of wariness on the part of the U.S. government about the rise of China's technology, and part of that is just due to China's success in building globally competitive products and getting nearer and nearer to the cutting edge on a lot of different. Things that could threaten the U.S. commercially, as well as potentially militarily, as many of these technologies have dual-use applications when it comes to building better airplanes and and chips that go inside、uh, warfighting algorithms or what have you. So, coming back to your your initial setup of Huawei and and 5G,、uh, one of the other big things that the Trump administration has pushed largely successfully is to convince many of the U.S. allies that having Huawei in their Huawei base stations in their 5G networks is dangerous. The thesis being that if you have Chinese technology, then Huawei is subject to the Chinese government's、uh, whim, and say there's a trade war, Huawei could be forced to shut off connectivity or sp- or spy on or make it much easier to spy on lots and lots of citizens. The The argument that the U.S. the Trump administration pushed forth was success successfully convinced many of America's closest allies, including Australia, Japan, the U.K. It seems like Germany, France, and many others. So the question then is, what will countries not rich enough? To afford the more expensive 5G route, which doesn't involve using Huawei, what what will countries that aren't like big targets of potential sort of like recriminations from China and are not as wealthy as the likes of the UK or or Japan do when it comes to this question? So I had a guest on. I think earlier last year, talk about the decision tree of like where you should or which country should and shouldn't end up spending the money to keep keep Huawei out of their telecom 
out of their telecom system. And the conclusion that he came to, which I largely agree with, is if you're the likes of Barbados and and to be honest, like China isn't going to be invading Barbados anytime soon or starting a trade war anytime soon. It's unlikely that the kind of risk that comes with Huawei, be that from a sort of surveillance perspective or a sort of future economic leverage perspective, is worth the tens of billions of dollars, which you would end up being able to save by going with Huawei. We've seen third countries be faced with a lot of pressure, like for instance, what you saw with, with Australia in the past few weeks. But I, I was listening to your to your show earlier this morning where you talked about how Beijing business people, when asked, are you interested in exporting to China? They'd be like, ah, it's too far away. I don't want to deal with it. So I think at the end of the day, the sort of leverage that like the the chances of China of China like putting big exports restrictions on Barbados is really low. And you're probably in a better place to answer than I am of whether or not that's a that's a big that's a big potential concern. Yeah. It's definitely not a concern at all. And that's one of the that's one yeah. of the interesting points to note is because a lot of the con a lot of the conversation about the, the tech clash between the US and China obviously is framed between the US and China. But in terms of like Caribbean countries, the actual calculation is very different. It's a non-starter question to even consider changing telecom infrastructure. It's just not possible. Yeah. It's there was a quote coming out of the State Department, I think, where they where I think Pompeo said like every diplomat all around the world should be focused on China. And you do the China and the Caribbean podcast. Like clearly there are things that are important about that relationship. But I think there are many other things in the US Caribbean relationship which are more important than whether or not Huawei is gonna be building the helping build out connecting Barbados to five G. Yeah, exactly. Also, one other thing, in the Caribbean, 5G actually makes very little sense. And that's also a thing, I think, a lot of the conversation, we're kind of talking about 5G in the Caribbean, it glossed over that fact. Where, for example, I say Barbados has about 300,000 people. There's no need for any extra bandwidth. Jamaica has about 3 yep. million. Even in that case, you don't need any extra bandwidth either. But it's still a very topical thing. Sure. Yeah. So you also had a, a piece in Wired with Kevin proposing that a good strategy towards actually competing with China as a software is actually open source as a better of your uh, strategy. So why do you think that's actually a, a good way forward? Sure. So I think in general, the kind of principles of open source are kind of amenable to a lot of what what America are amenable to American values. This sort of like China state driven industrial model involves spending a lot of money on picking a handful of national champions and hoping they take you out into the promised land. One of the sort of magical things about open source, and just for two for a few minutes of, of background for folks who haven't come across it, is basically there are it's a sort of development philosophy which was started in the 80s and early 90s and it started around software if folks have heard of github or linux and that was created by people all around the world sending stuff working together and without compensation and kind of upload committing their different changes to uh, a sort of broader stream of other folks working on it and ending up with this magical thing which is 
first rate first rate technology and open for the whole world to use so it's not just linux like there are many other examples of software which is now central to the things we use on a daily basis and this website called github which is where most of the open source software lives is absolutely the software that lives on github is absolutely critical to to things that you interact with dozens of times a day on and offline at this point there's an aspect of it where there's a big discussion in the U.S. about what to do about industrial policy. And this is something that conservatives in particular have shied away from for a long time, given that they are worried about picking winners and losers and having... It sounds socialist, giving subsidies to industries. And there's also been a lot of blowback in 2008, 2009 with the stimulus after the great financial crisis, where Republicans were all angry that Obama gave money to Solyndra, though he also gave money to Tesla. And here we are today. But anyways, helping push forward open source technology is a bit of a way around that in that you end up boosting the building blocks that future companies will need while not necessarily putting all of your eggs in one basket. If the government puts more support into it, could end up having more broad benefits to um, an entire industry as opposed to maybe if give checks to 10 companies, if they all die, then all the money goes with it. But if you invest in in the open source technology that future companies will need to build on, that's a sort of like a more sustainable solution and has a broader societal impact. Interestingly, the, the Chinese government has caught on to this logic to a certain degree as well. And there are parts of the Chinese bureaucracy which are very excited about the potential for open source uh, hardware and software because they see it as a way to potentially get around U.S. export sanctions like we were talking about in your first question, Rashid. The logic being, okay, if all this all this code is just up online on the internet, then you can't stop us from getting it. It's not like a, like a corporate secret or something. I think th- there are, if all you want to think of whether or not you want to embrace open source from a U.S.-China competitive aspect, there are potential downsides. But I think pushing more open models helps counteract the the support that Chinese state-owned enterprises as well as just like companies that have like a a walled garden where they can grow and perfect their and build a base market of a billion people it allows other firms outside of that universe to to develop in a more healthy way without necessarily having to do the same thing that China is which is picking a handful of state champions and you know rolling the dice that those firms are going to be are going to be run well enough to to go head to head with with the companies that China is supporting. Mm-hmm. In terms of strategy, industrial strategy, and so forth, the U.S. election is fairly finished, and the incoming administration they obviously have to have some kind of policy regarding all these kind of things. Do you think that the Biden administration will actually have a better China policy than Trump administration in a more robust way. So first off, I think there's going to be a continued focus on technology, a new focus on human rights, and a decreased focus on trade. So first on technology, I think the vast majority, uh, I've spent a lot of time reading the China-related writings of all these people who are now, who have just been appointed to, to important jobs in the Obama administration. And basically, 
almost all of them agree with the um, thesis that the Trump put forward, which is that China's technological rise is an issue and something we need to address. While the way that I think a Biden administration is going to go about addressing it will be a little different than the Trump administration. I'm I'm not entirely sure how they're to what extent they're going to continue taking the kind of like export restrictions and sanctions on Chinese firms if they're going to continue down the path that Trump has of being pretty aggressive in in targeting lots of different um, actors and banning American firms from selling chips to to various Chinese ones and so on. I am confident their whole phrase was build back better. And they put out a very large policy document with these enormous total multi-billion you know, Ten hundred billion dollar totals for investing in science and science and technology and research in in a handful of other things that they hope to not only have a negative technology policy of stopping China from growing and getting to the cutting edge, but also ensuring that the U.S. continues its place in global preeminence and doing that through a variety of various policy measures. The most important question, I think, which is still outstanding, is to what extent the GOP is going to be open to spending money on these sorts of issues. So this is the sort of traditional swing in 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 GOP politics is when there's a Republican president, they don't really care about deficits and are happy to cut taxes and not really worry about the money, not really worrying about spending more than comes in. But once the Democrats, once the Democrats um, take back the White House, all of a sudden Republicans in Congress are saying, oh, wait, we're fiscal conservatives. We're worried about um, the national debt and so on. There's going to be things pulling on both sides with them when it comes to these sorts of issues. On the one hand, they're going to some of them are going to regain their sort of like fiscal consciousness while others are going to say, oh, like science is anti-China. We're fine with it. We're happy to dabble in more industrial policy type stuff if the point is to make sure that we don't uh, lose our edge to China. So that's going to be something that it's going to be that's going to be fascinating to watch unfold and will unfold pretty early on, I think, in the first few months of a Biden administration. Another thing you wrote about not too long ago was the extent of China's Twitter operations for influence. Oh, that was a fun one, yeah. Why do you think that the influence operations on social media from China are still so lackluster? So, to give a little bit of background on the report I did, I Twitter put out a large sample of all of the accounts that they took down, which they assessed to be part of what they call inauthentic op inauthentic influence operations, basically making fake accounts. So this is not the Chinese embassy in Barbados saying, hey, look at all the things you can buy from China. (laughs) This is basically the equivalent of like Twitter bots, mostly talking Mm -hmm. about Hong Kong and Taiwan elections and Guangui and what have you. Your question, like, why are they so bad at this? I think there are a handful of reasons. First off, it's a human capacity. It's like a it's like a talent problem. These jobs Mm. presumably do not pay particularly well. And the folks who have strong English language or foreign language skills are probably wealthy enough and again it's not just language skills you need to do this you also need to like actually understand the culture and like the way foreigners use social media which is hard and requires not just being able to pass your english language gaokao exam but like to have basically obsessively been watching american television and hanging out on twitter for fun and what have you so that 
type of person is not going to take this job, which is basically like sweatshop work of like when your KPI is just like making 10,000 tweets a day. 98% of the tweets that they caught had zero likes. So just to give you a sense of like how much this is a rote operation. So anyways, first off, we have just talent not necessarily being there. Second off, the accounts clearly did not have like sort of freedom to be creative. And the counter example to this is what Russia has been able to do. When you look at the the Russian accounts that Twitter taken took down, they are funny, they are very up to the minute, they say whatever they want and it shows in their results. Like they they commonly have tweets that go super viral and have like tens of thousands of likes. And looking at them, like all those likes aren't fake, right? But Maybe. it's something that which is reflective of domestic state media is at the end of the day Chinese influence operations, they, they don't allow like a lot of freedom at the end point, whether that be an ambassador or state media. Like if you watch, it's, it's if you watch CCTV five, the English language CCTV, and compare that to GT, which is the sort of Russian equivalent, there's just so it's clear that that English language CCTV is just very hidebound, and they have talking points that come down and they have to repeat them and aren't allowed to like riff off of it and adapt it to adapt it to an audience lastly i think the product that these influence operations are trying to sell is much less exciting than what the ccp was able to proffer back at its height of influence around the world in the 50s and 60s in in one of your earlier episodes you mentioned in the early 1960s the former president of guiana went to china and hung out with mao to learn about the revolution and understand what was happening Mm -hmm. and that's because what was happening in china if you were a left-wing leader was was incredible. Here was a proletarian revolution. Here was this. Here was this. You know, revolutionary leader who'd kicked out the imperialists and was leading the world into a new era. And the appeal of Maoism as an ideology was something which was extraordinarily powerful in not just developing world countries, but also in in the U.S. and in Europe. The the Black Panthers in the U.S. were big fans of Mao. Same with a lot of a lot of communist movements in France and the U.K. So nowadays, like, what is Xi Jinping selling? This sort of like communist, but not really communist anymore, more just like authoritarian model where I guess the biggest thing which would be exciting would be to like help you find a development model to get richer faster. And that doesn't quite have the sort of appeal that that the CCP had in its earlier years in the in the 30s, you know, 50s and 60s in particular. I agree. Yeah, I think Griff, you had this conversation a bit with Tanner Greer on one of your previous episodes. Do you think there's actually a real difference between how younger people that are more focused on China, how they perceive China's prospects going forward, versus, for example, how, let's say, 50, 60-year-olds, how they perceive China's growing competition with the U.S.? Is there really a big difference between yeah. how these two groups think about things? I'll summarize his argument. I don't necessarily want to endorse it. But basically what he's saying is the part that I certainly do agree with is the folks who are in their 50s and 60s now, they lived through an era 
uh, in which trends were positive. The 80s were people were expecting China to liberalize. That was mainstream opinion. And, and even after Tiananmen, as you get into the mid 90s and 2000s, it was still reasonable to have expectations that China would turn into a, a more that the Chinese government would t- turn into a more kind of like friendly organization. And the most egregious stuff that we see today has not really happened. If your worldview is shaped by decades of the trend pointing in one way, it's understandable that you would be reluctant or perhaps a little slower to recognize the fact that the trend, you know, that that we've reached an inflection point and the rise of Xi Jinping and particularly as he changed the constitution and did the Hong Kong national security law and the camps in Xinjiang and expansion in the South China Sea. And I can do the whole list, but like all that adds up to, I think, a very different China than the one that you were looking at in 2000 and in 2007, say. The part I don't necessarily want to completely sign off. So there is a part of there is a part of Tanner's argument where he says basically these more senior people they're like their career is all is invested in like having China look a certain way and it's too much of a it's too embarrassing they have too many friends in China they have too many like business contracts or their research is structured in a certain way where like it would be too hard for them to go back on what they've been saying for 30 years. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think most of these scholars who are on the less hawkish side are earnest in their interpretation of the of the situation as it is today. But yeah, to, to kind of change gear a bit, a few years ago in Barbados and Trinidad and some other Caribbean countries, K-dramas became a bit popular not very popular, but a bit popular. Okay. <laughs> and I always wonder, like, back then, I was like, why are there no Chinese or Japanese shows on TV? And now I understand these things more. Chinese shows are actually not very good. Still. Are there any Chinese show recommendations that you have? Absolutely. First off, I would not argue with the fact that into the 2000s and early 2010s, the, the quality hasn't quite reached the levels of HBO, like Netflix, back when Netflix made good television and so on. So I do watch a lot of Chinese television and both for just to keep my Mandarin up, but also out of entertainment purposes. And there are two types of shows which I watch. So the first is like Zongi Jemu, which is like reality show. And I'll tell you about one which I was watching the other day, which is so incredibly cringeworthy, but also just incredible. So it's called Lingren Xindong Offer, which is an internship competition. So it's just... I don't know why these kids sign up, but it's like very highly educated Chinese from 23 to 28. And the first two seasons are in law firms, presumably because it's straightforward if you're just a random person to understand what a lawyer does as opposed to an engineering competition or something. And all these folks are like varying levels of mature and watching them interact with bosses and screw up is just so cringeworthy because I know I've made the same exact mistakes they made 10 years ago. Another fascinating thing about that show is particularly how a lot of sort of dynamics of workplace life in China are realized in the show. So you see all this sort of actually not particularly subtle misogyny, as well as slightly more subtle Mm. class discrimination, particularly on where people went to university. So there's a very clear hierarchy in the show where the guy who has an LLM from Stanford gets way more respect 
at first than the person who was at the Wuhan government university or whatever, when everyone's, like, oh, mm-hmm. you didn't go to a fancy school. Like, why are you even auditioning for this show? Which just made me very uncomfortable. And in terms of the sort of gender stuff, watching them ask the women about what are you going to do? Like, when are you planning to have a child? Questions that are straight up illegal in the US, seeing that be something that these partners at law firms are comfortable asking to someone in a in an interview that is going to be broadcast to millions of people is really says something i think about the the nature of the nature of the chinese workplace so that's one for you ling ren Xindong offer i particularly the first few episodes of season two and mm. coming back to uh jan shuju which is like scripted drama my favorite one of 2020 which i think shows a next level of sort of skill and acting and writing in particular is this show Shemi the Jiaolua. It's called like the Secret Corner on 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 YouTube. You can find it in English subtitles, and it's this twelve part mini series. It's interesting. I it, it, one of the writer one of the writers slash producers went to Columbia University and got his writing professor involved and there are lots of sort of little tricks that it's very clear comes from western mirror series so like cliffhangers at the end of the episode to get you to keep watching and it also portrays a different level a segment of chinese society which is much so most chinese shows focus on like basically very rich people but this one the central characters are middle and lower class which i think it as adds a lot to the show and making it not just like another oh like i'm gonna drive around in beijing in my ferrari and complain that like my parents aren't nice to me or whatever so those two i would i would shout out i recently watched lehu and this one was it started off very good it's about <laughs> it's the most odd topic for a, a tv show the english is called hunting and it's about the anti-corruption operation between the financial system in the early thousands in China when they hunt down with financial criminals and how they create the financial crime division in Beijing and the amount that unfolds but it was again one of those like it made like 40 some hours or so it started pretty good but tapered off I was yeah. like come on yeah <laughs> oh one more for you guys this is a, a newer one that just came out in October it's called Qi Hun so it's like uh, Wei Qi the Qi and like Ling Hun the Hun and it's uh, this show about this like mm-hmm. kid and he plays go and he has a secret guardian and it's just acted and fun and i played a little bit of go at the beginning of quarantine and it now got me back into it because i'm like oh man mm-hmm. like i wish i had a fairy <laughs> godfather telling me what the good moves are and like making me a global champion or whatever so anyway shout out to that one too uh, good child good child acting yeah a lot of books now about China foreign policy, China relations, China econ, China politics go down the line. And I usually personally don't find many of these books very good. But I'm sure you must have some good recommendations about some China watching books that would be very useful to read. So what I'm going to do is not recommend a book in particular, but recommend a website. Because I feel like all the books I like, all the good China books I read end up becoming China Talk podcast episodes. So you can just go back into my archive and see. But there's this website called the American Mandarin Society, which is run by this guy, Nate Ahearns. One of the things that they've done over the past few years is get experts in particular fields to write syllabi, like eight or 10 week syllabi to get folks 
from zero to one on a variety of topics. So the ones that they have currently now on their website, mandarinsociety.org, are on military, the politics and party, the economy, Chinese foreign policy, environment and energy. And I think like the best tip I have and the thing that I've realized is the more basic understanding you read, the more you can get out of books faster. So in so many China books, there's a lot of explanation which is repeated from book to book because these books have to be able to be understood by people who aren't China experts if you're writing in English. And there's, it's usually, books are usually about like China and a topic. And like they want the people who are interested in the topic to also read the book. And I think in, if you read through one of those syllabi and then you read and then you start reading books you can end up skipping a third of it and skimming a lot more of these books and just being able to ingest a lot more quickly in the latest literature if you have built a really solid foundation of of knowledge about, say, the party or the Chinese economy. And for doing that, the most efficient way, some... There are books like the Handbook to Chinese Economy or whatever, but I found that the best way to do that on particular topics, I'm reading through the Chinese military one right now, which I've found Mm -hmm. fascinating, is to go down and be rigorous about reading every article on these China syllabi projects. So um, a bit of a meta recommendation, but ultimately, I think one more useful than any particular book of the history. Agree, for sure. One of the things that people have been sleeping on in the West, I think, is Chinese rap. You're like single hell trying to drag <laughs> us into it <laughs> one ultra out of time. So why exactly do you like Chinese rap so much? I mean, why do I like Chinese rap? I, I think I like rap. And maybe the more germane question is like, why does this like white guy from New York City only listen to one genre. And I will, I will say that there is a long and storied history of white Jews from New York City being involved in the rap industry. So I guess like it was from baseline moving to China already being obsessed with this genre and like being so excited that it existed in China. I will confess that like even now I still find many of the lyrics very difficult to follow. The sort of pronunciation is hard, but watching watching this thing that I love and which is extraordinarily professionalized in the US, seeing it over the past few years in China go from something where it was basically impossible to make a living and everyone was doing it basically as a hobby and because something they loved and watching sort of money come in, which both has increased the time that the artist can devote to the sort of like level of production of the songs. So seeing that sort of historic arc replay itself, but like way faster in China because it was all of a sudden with in 2017 with China has hip hop where this became an, and this genre was brought to the public consciousness and all of a sudden these rappers who were in near poverty were able to do shows in front of a few thousand people and really sustain themselves i think the music is some of it is very good much of it is not that good but there's certainly enough to find one interesting song a week which i can put on china talk i would say because of china talk i think now my playlist every once in a while we see from Ma Suwei or Xiao Bai just like pop in every once every once in a while. <laughs> That's great to hear. Okay. I'm definitely gonna throw some more Caribbean stuff on my show. Uh, actually I went to a Jamaican music show in Shanghai oh. maybe mid twenty eighteen. And it was a real trick for me to see like Caribbean music at Chinese bar. That was pretty fun. So that might hopefully get more popular at some point. For sure. 
Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Jordan, for having this conversation. It was really fun. <laughs> Rashid, this is a this is a blast. I can't wait to do it again. Well, I tell she a real close Y'all are almost